going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Chowda. As in clam? Yeah, that's a good way to open a podcast, isn't it? <laughs> Chowda. <laughs> All right. Uh, so last week we talked about the procession in mass, the op- the uh, in- what is it? Were the you there for that one, Jesse? Procession? Yeah, the, the gathering up of the ministers and putting them in the right order. <laughs> they haven't even started processing yet. Proceeding. Yeah. Proceeding. Yeah. But as we proceed through this series, uh, we are now going to talk about prayers at the uh, foot of the altar. Sort of. Sort as of, opposed yeah. to the, As opposed to the arms or head of the altar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you, uh, uh, we're still in the first sentence of uh, rubric number one at the order of mass. When I the know. people are gathered, the priest approaches the altar with the ministers while the entrance chant is sung. And so this is what we want to talk about today, about the accompanying music to this entrance procession. I can't wait to talk yeah. about this, Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's go to the, uh, <laughs> let's go to the text. So You're de- good to put up with me and my enthusiasm, yeah. Chris, uh-huh. yes. So in the general instruction number 47, right, so this, uh, this is what it says. When the people are gathered and as the priest enters with the deacon and ministers, the entrance chant begins. Its purpose is fourfold. I think we did a podcast on the we did. entrance chant. Once, long time so, ago. Long time ago. So it has a fourfold purpose. This would be a good quiz for your uh, music director to see if he or she knows the fourfold purpose of the entrance chant and is uh, planning, uh, preparing music accordingly. But here's the purpose. One, to open the celebration. Okay. Two, foster the unity of those who have been gathered. Okay. Three, introduce their thoughts to the mystery of the liturgical time or festivity. Yes. What are we celebrating on this day? Yeah. And number four, accompany the procession of the priest and ministers. Mm -hmm. So, this last one, actually, um, I found uh, a, a kind of an interesting point to discuss. So what do you guys think of this? So let's say, for example, you're going to, we'll, we'll get to what the options are, but let's say you're going to sing a hymn uh, at, the, uh, at the entrance and the priest uh, gets to the chair at the end of the second verse, but there's five verses to the hymn. What do you do? Stop, stop, stop singing. Yeah, you stop singing. You're going to make the the priest wait until you finish getting every single verse done. Yes. The music is the servant of the liturgy and not the other way around. That's a smarter way to put it. Can I say what he said? (laughs) Yeah, go ahead, Jesse. The music is a servant. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Here, write this down. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, there there are, um, I, I sort of think that's the answer too. I mean, there are some exceptions. Let's say if you're doing a Trinitarian hymn, I mean, yes. you can't stop after verse two and leave out the Holy Spirit. Right? True. But some will say, no, there's a, there's a real uh, in- uh, integrity to the hymn that the whole thing, you're either doing all of it or none of it. I, I don't think that's, um, it's certainly not uh, 
well, I mean, we don't have a long tradition of seeing hymns at the entrance of Mass, which for reasons we'll get to shortly. But uh, I sort of think, too, given what it says here, that it's supposed to accompany the procession. Well, when the procession is over, it seems to me that the music is over, too. Yes. And even though we're not anywhere near that yet in the general instruction, same thing for the communion chant, right? That it's supposed to stop when people have finished receiving communion. So interesting, yeah. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because the chant, when the procession's over, the accompanying chant is over. Yeah. Now, Dennis, what do you remember about... Um, Very little. I know. <laughs> As the days go on and on, oh, I think, so I think you do it's forget so more true. and more. Now, but I mean, you have more experience uh, than I do about attending uh, whatever we call these masses. Uh, is extraordinary form still a, a, a I, proper term? Yeah, and people are saying the, v- the, the Vitus Ordo. The Vitus no. Ordo, okay. But right. extraordinary form is still out there. Okay, so let's. Uh, so if you're going to go to an extraordinary form mass, what would you hear as the ministers came in? I mean, what? How does that begin? Well, it depends. If you're at a low mass, you will hear nothing, or maybe there'll be a hymn, and the priest would come in and say silent prayers before he even goes up to the altar itself. So, the prayers at the foot of the altar are really f- prayers at the bottom of the stairs, you know, or the entry to, the, maybe not the sanctuary itself. And then, in fact, there's often a rubric. Not an official rubric, but a little marker in a hand missile for the regular person that says he ascends to the altar. And that's how you know where he is. And it helps you know what he's doing. So he does all these preparatory prayers that he might be worthy. Yeah, Isn't that um, it's so hard to put your finger on this stuff? I, how I remember it was this some of the a big part of the prayers at the foot of the altar is this Psalm 42 about uh, uh, I will go up unto the altar of God. Um but I was reading, I don't know, uh, I think it was in Pius Parsh. I don't know how trustworthy of an historian he is uh, these days, but that this Psalm 42 was basically an introit once upon a time, or I've heard it that this was kind of his prayer that he would say in the sacristy, sac- uh, in the sacristy. Right. but it, it kind of became uh, something different. It kind of became a priest private prayer slash introit that he would say by himself, uh, as a part of the prayers at the foot of the altar right. before they would do these uh, right. uh, confiteors, the priests to the servers, the servers to the priests. Now, my knowledge of liturgical history is not sophisticated quite enough to know if the standard line is right or wrong. But the standard line often is if the low mass becomes the norm, right? The priest is the only one there. He's private mass. He says these prayers to himself at the altar, right? It doesn't make sense to stand at the sacristy when other people are milling around. And so all these things that were once before mass became at the altar. And so that was at least partial justification for removing them in the reform of the Missal after Vatican II. They're very pious. It's, it's lovely to hear a priest admit how small he is and powerless he is and how great God is. And in a sense, to ask to be worthy to go up to the altar and, and say Mass, there's something very edifying about that. But I guess the question is, is it part of Mass or not? Or is it preparation for Mass? And that's that's the settling. The question has been we, settled. We I talked guess. about the prayers before Mass, too. Um, right, like vesting prayers. Listed, yep. Yeah, so it would be kind of like that. Imagine if you had to watch the priest vest and hear him say the vesting prayers. Would that be pious and therefore helpful to us? Or would you say, well, he should really do that in the sacristy? I think that's a similar kind of question. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I was actually trying to dig through my uh, notes as an L.I. student from all those years ago. And I think it was this guy... Uh, Anton Baumstark. Did you ever read him? I have uh, heard of was, him. Anton yeah. the uh, crisp pine tree. That's what his name means, right? <laughs> I don't know. But he, I thought it was him who made this point that often things get 
added or at the beginning and at the end, mm-hmm. you know, and I've always thought this was kind of true. I, I know like in lacrosse now we do, and maybe it's where you are too. I don't know, but uh, most places pray either a prayer for vocations or St. Michael, the archangel. It always comes at the end of the mass. Uh, and I suppose at the beginning too, is where these things start to kind of uh, accrue. Um and maybe one other point, though. I mean, Dennis, you were talking about the priest praying for uh, clean, uh, for you know, uh, purification, and uh, uh, that he might be worthy. We published this in, which I know you fellows have read, <clears throat> you liturgy guys. Uh, mm-hmm. This is in uh, uh, our AB Insight newsletter, and we have Father Michael Lang, who who's a teacher at the Liturgical Institute uh, from time to time. He's doing this series. Uh, it's a, called A Short History of the uh, Roman Rite Mass. And he's talking about when uh, the liturgical books went from Rome into France or Gaul, I suppose, in the 8th or ninth centuries, kind of the tone of the prayers kind of shifted uh, from being more uh, uh, of adoration and praise and more what he would call apologetic you know, so the priest would 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 pray a lot more of these not types of prayers for um, preparation, for cleanliness, for being uh, forgiven, and things like that. And so, so that's a complex history, at least uh, in my mind. But what um, you know, you're talking about a, a low mass, Dennis, or a, a red mass at. Now, and is this right? So when uh, it was Pius XII who said, if it's a low mass, the, the people can be singing hymns sort of over the top or at the same time as the priest is reciting these things uh, on the way. And is that right? Well, in uh, the, 19, the famous 1958 instruction, it says they that's allowed if they cannot be suppressed. <laughs> in other words, if the hymns are so entrenched in the culture that you can't suppress them, the permission is given. But it's not really presented as ideal. Mm-hmm. Now, what if it were a, a sung mass? Um, well, then you would have the scola. I mean, if it's a sung mass, the scola would be singing the, the introit at that point. The intro is long enough, right? So even though the intro, the priest isn't saying the introit at that point, the scola might be singing the introit at that point. So uh, can you explain to me real quick, because I, I know uh, a lot of our listeners might be interested in this. What is the introit as opposed to some of the other parts that we would say? Well, the intro is the, the the text song that accompanies technically the entrance procession, right, Chris? It's mm-hmm. the entrance chant. Yeah. Uh, in Troibo, is that what it is? I don't, I don't know what it is. I, I go in or I enter. Yeah. That's what the line is in the um, in Troibo at Altare Day. It's that I will go to the altar of God, go into the altar of God. Yeah. But th- I mean, this will be a good lead into, I mean, kind of the next question is, I mean, what, what should be we, we know why the entrance chant is sung, but uh, and then we can look at how it's sung. But I mean, what traditionally, well, I guess as good a time as any is traditionally, right? You sing the the church would sing in uh, the Psalms, you know. So there'd be an antiphon from the scriptures most mm-hmm. of the time from the Psalms, but I don't think always. And then it would be sung um, uh, in you know after two or three lines of psalm text, okay? very much like a responsorial psalm would be uh, today. Okay? And that's how the, the, the introit or the entrance uh, would work here. And so this uh, Psalm 42 about going to the altar of God was very much along those lines, this type of uh, introit. And so I think, you know, after 
uh, say at least at a low mass, right? So after this Psalm 42, then the priest would go into the sanctuary and he would say the proper introit for the day. Right. But if you have a long chanted version of that, they would probably start it a little ahead of him because it, it wasn't corresponding exactly with his saying of the words. So the priest had to say it for it to be valid at first. And the, the musical accompaniment was not the saying of it that the priest would do. It was the singing of it, which was considered secondary to that. Until later, they got permission that the priest, the people and the choir could sing the words together and it would actually count. Yeah. Yeah, and these are the, the the entrance chants are among the more I don't know the, at least in the Roman gradual. See, the, the church actually has an official songbook. <laughs> it's called the Graduale Romanum, uh, and has another one too called the Graduale Simplex. Uh, the, the ones in the Graduale Romanum can be a little bit uh, uh, tricky uh, to sing, and so it's difficult for the people to sing. So anyway, that's how. For a variety of reasons, the the norm, which was supposed to be the sung mass, became uh, the low mass. But but think of it, we, we're so used to just singing him at the beginning. Well, that is a kind of watered-down version of the proper chant, the entrance chant that the mm-hmm. church gives. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully, if you don't sing the actual chant, you should sing something similar. <laughs> but yeah. that's not the primary option. So let's talk about that, Chris. Yeah. Well, let's go to number 48 uh, in the germ. And the first part of paragraph number 48 uh, explains how the chant can be sung. And I think this might be a surprise to some people. It says, this chant can be sung, one, alternately by the choir and the people. Can you imagine this? The choir and the people singing back and forth. Uh, two, by the cantor and the people. Three, entirely by the people. Or four, entirely by the choir alone. Right, so there's four different ways of actually singing the entrance. Okay, Are those all, ways mm-hmm. all equal to each other, or is there a preference for one or the other? I know because sometimes it, the language they say denotes a preference. Yeah, no, that's a, a debatable point. Um, you know, is it uh, is it listed in order of preference or not? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I propose that question to our own Monsignor Dempsey, uh, yeah, who is uh, expert in canon law and especially things liturgical law. And he said a strict reading of the general instructions, because it does not say in this order of preference that you can't presume it. But what you'd have to do is look through the tradition where it always was listed in that order of preference in all the documents of the 20th century. And that would be the context. But strictly speaking, if this were a contract for you, you know, to either buy a house or a tree or a dog, there's no order of preference here. Right. They're just options. And that would be uh, how to interpret it. As it is now. You could now. Buy, buy a doghouse that's a treehouse, and then you get all three of them. Yeah, a tree doghouse. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, whether there's a, a, a preference or not, I mean, notice what's uh, actually uh, uh, the, the valid options. Okay? And, you know, right, most of the time, it's probably uh, everybody, it's number three, it's entirely by the people. You know, maybe at a cathedral liturgy or something like that, there might be parts that the choir would sing. But yeah, there's a number of different legitimate ways that the entrance chant could be sung. Now, let's go next to what can be sung. We know it why, its purpose. We know how, the manner of its singing. Well, what are the options for singing? Dennis, do you have it open there at number 48? I do. Um, well, I have the slightly older uh, translation, so I... Why don't you start, Chris, while okay. I find my newer translation? Yeah. So it says, in the dioceses of the United States, there are four options for the entrance chant. And some of these four have like multiple options within them. So there's a great variety. Number one, the antiphon from the Missal or the antiphon with its psalm from the Graduale Romanum. Set to uh, music there. So the 
when when the church talks about having propers or proper texts, these are texts that are specific to a particular saint or celebration or something like that. And the proper text for a mass would be the readings, would be the oration, so the opening prayer and prayer over the offerings and prayer after communion, but also these antiphons are proper antiphons that are meant to be sung on that day. And so if you were open your missile to the solemnity of all saints, there would be an entrance antiphon there that this is that this germ is talking about as the first entrance, as the first option rather, to sing that scriptural text uh, to music, either from the missal, set to music somewhere else, or from the Roman gradual. So the gradual Romanum is not, properly speaking, even if you did these in order of preference, the first option, it's the antiphon from the missal or the gradual Romanum, which as we go through it, it'll make me ask, what's the difference between option one and three? But let's get through the options first. Yeah, yeah I think, I think too, maybe part of the well, this, you know, to your point before, if you're a music director and you're trying to pick music, I'll bet most music directors go f- to the readings if they go anywhere, you know, but that's the first place that they go to the readings. But very few, I would say, actually start with what the actual antiphon might be. Yeah. And sometimes I think what, uh, Dennis, which sometimes also come from the readings or vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Part of the, I think, say for these Sundays in ordinary time, you know, now that there's on a three year cycle, your A, B, and C, traditionally, which is what the Roman gradual was, it, it only had one option. And so now, there's so if you go to like a current uh, graduale romanum, Dennis. I don't know the last time you cracked one of those open. They have to try to supply for cycle A, cycle B, cycle C. Whereas 75 years ago, there was just one option for this particular Sunday. So sometimes they don't align, they don't match up, at least according to the readings, like they might. That makes sense. Is that, that right? Yeah, and you know, just a recent, a recent solemnity, right? It was All Saints. And, you know, I just happen to be looking at it here. Um, Let us all rejoice in the Lord, celebrating a feast day in honor of all the saints on whose solemnity the angels rejoice and join in the praising of the Son of God. So, boy, that's a theological thing, right? And then the psalmist exalt you just in the Lord, praise from the upright is fitting. It's all about all of these saints. And not only are they singing, but the angels rejoice that they're joining us. So you see all the theology contained in there. We human beings, these fallen human beings, are become, can become saints. We praise God, and even the angels are happy about that, <laughs> that we can join their their company. That's a whole lot different than for all the saints who from their labors rest. Not a bad song, but it's not the, not the same thing. Well, yeah, remember what it said in 47. One of the purposes is to introduce their thoughts to the mystery of the liturgical festi- festivity. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a great introduction. <laughs> to to this day, if that's kind of the the first thing that the church is saying to you, and you happen to be paying attention, I mean that that's a saying a mouthful right there. Right. right. Okay. Well, that was the option number one. Number two is the antiphon and psalm from the graduale simplex. Okay. Okay. What's a graduale simplex? That was a simpler version of the graduale. graduale <laughs> you got it, Jesse. But that was something that Vatican II and Sacrosanctum Concilium called for specifically. That the psalm should be set to a slightly simpler text, but still in Latin most of the time, or all the time, I think. Mm-hmm. So if someone sang the Graduale Simplex in Latin with chant, probably people would say, oh, that's so pre-Vatican II. And it's like, uh, no, it's actually the request <laughs> of Vatican II itself. Yes. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, and that, uh, as far as I'm concerned, Dennis, that's what number three has to do with, a chant from another collection of psalms and antiphons approved by the Conference of Bishops or the Dawson Bishop. So I think some of these translations, say that Adam Bartlett does or Paul Ford or others, you know, they're translations uh, in, in many cases of um, the Graduale Simplex you know, so it's another collection. It's not the antiphon from the Missal, but it's another oh, collection see. of uh, of seasonal antiphons and psalms. That was my but, question, too, about yeah. language, right? Mm-hmm. Are, are we to assume that uh, the preference is Latin for the uh, antiphons or does, you know, does it not matter? Yeah, well, that has to go back to, well, I don't know. I mean, option number one is what's in the Missal and that's going to be in the vernacular. It could be in the Latin as well. So, you know, I don't know. I think... Yeah, I just don't know. Um, but Clear I think we can as mud, right? Clear yeah, as mud. Well, I think we can leave the priority aside. But I, 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 I think if you could go to your parish a hundred Sundays out of the, I guess you can't go to a hundred Sundays out of the year. Let's say you go fifty-two Sundays out of the year, and you never hear option one, and you never hear option three, you never hear option two. Okay, I think uh, you know something is missing. Right, because this missile has baked into it part of the tradition that she's trying to give to men and women of today, and if we just eliminate those, then we're—I think—we're depriving you know men and women of today of, of a great part of their patrimony. And you know, I have the 1958 instruction on my mind lately. You know, when in the 20th century, when they spoke of the motu proprio, you know what they were talking about, right? In 1940, the motu proprio. Sure, TLS. It was trawless legitudiny, right? It was so important. God bless. They just called it that. Well, this was the 1958 instruction that didn't have as long a life before Vatican II, but it basically summarized all the documents on music and liturgical rulings from the Congregation for Rights and all of that. And it laid all these things out, one, two, three, four, five, what they all were, what were the first uh, option, second option. It's where locum, primum locum comes from. We talk about pride of place for chant. And so... We have a context for determining what these things uh, mean, but without it, uh, it's hard to know. So I would say, look at the 58 instruction, the Sacra Liturgica, is it the Musica Sacra at Sacra Liturgica, and then read these together, and then you get a sense of what's what. And the and Musicum Sacrum after Vatican II as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you were a subscriber to this concept of hermeneutic of, uh, of what is it? Uh, it's not... It, of renewal. Obedience. Hermeneutic of obedience. Hermeneutic of reform, yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's like you said, Dennis, it's it's the context within which you, you read these documents and you know, drop out of the sky one day. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's complete our list here from Germ 48. Option number four is another liturgical chant that is suited to the sacred action, the day, the time of the year, similarly approved by the Conference of Bishops of the Dawson Bishop. So mm-hmm. you have a number of options of things that can be sung. Interestingly, though, the older translation for the new missal, the first translation said another, a suitable liturgical song. And then when they translated it again after um, Liturgium Authenticum came out, they changed it to the liturgical chant. Now, I've heard musicians arguing about this, that cantus in Latin can be song. It could also be chant. So someone had to make an editorial decision that a suitable chant now, that's not necessarily the same thing as any old hymn or even a, a hymn appropriate to the season, right? So what do we say about a chant versus a hymn if you're going to be a strict interpreter of this text? What's the difference? Mm, 
I'm That's not, what I say. A popular <laughs> Matt Marr song is not a chant, I wouldn't say. And in fact, most even traditional hymns, you know, they're not chants. Yeah. I don't know. If there is a distinction, I don't know what it is. Um, you know, other than maybe they just wanted to go this way in the translation just to keep people's eyes on the fact that the norm coming out of tradition is is a, is a type of chant, a plain a Gregorian chant or a plain song chant, something like that. What do you think? Well, we all know what a chant is, right? It's a text that is expanded and elevated and vested and dilated by adding music to it. So it does seem that the idea is that what you want is the words of the church, the mind of the church in the graduale. If you can't do that, you do the mind of the church in a simpler form. If you can't do that, you do it in an, another form. And if you can't do that, well, do something that's like it. Um, and I don't know how you distinguish a chant from a song, but this is one for the doctors, as they say, that they get together and decide. Well, Dennis uh, Gill has that commentary on Sing to the Lord. I wonder if he has, uh, if there's some clarification there. It's your homework between now and the next podcast. Okay, I'll do that. Yep. Okay, uh, and then just, uh, let's see, let's wrap this one up. It says, if there's no singing at the entrance, the antiphon given in the Missal is recited either by the faithful or by some of them or by a reader or by the priest himself. Okay, so, uh, Or who, this is interesting, who may even adapt it as a part of his introductory uh, explanation. So anyway, the church wants that in there. So I think that um, in my opinion, I in my hopefully informed opinion, I mean, the church wants us to sing these and, and that we dismiss them so readily, I think, is a, is a disservice to, to our celebrations. So, Yeah, but that, even that, just if you're not going to sing it, you should speak. The understand of font, it's, it's important that these words are heard. It's not important that music is sung per se, right? The music is the extension of the words, but the words are the important thing. So I would just encourage people to uh, not think of songs as bookends. For mass, but a way to get the the mystery of the season or the of the feast into the minds of people and primacy text in the missal itself always. Yeah, in fact, maybe just uh, to put an exclamation point on that, this is from the the U.S. Bishops' document called "Sing to the Lord: Music in Divine Worship." Is that what it is? Two thousand seven ish. It says, uh, I thought if we had more time, we could talk about accompaniment. But this is what it says in, uh, at number 86. It says, of all the sounds of which human beings created in the image and likeness of God are capable, voice is the most privileged and fundamental. Musical instruments in the liturgy are best understood as an extension of and support to the primary liturgical instrument, which is the human, human voice. voice. So and I think that relates very well to what you're saying. It's, 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 it's words. That the primacy is the logos in the liturgy. And I think to refocus our attention back to the revealed logos, who's a person, would do uh, a great deal for the celebration of yes. Yeah. Imagine if you said to one of your wives, words don't matter. How, come <laughs> how many home? wives do you have? How, yeah, I was just going to say, how many wives do you have? How many wives do you guys have? Yeah. <laughs> if you said, well, words don't matter, so I come home and say, I hate you, you're ugly. Like, that wouldn't go over well, right? I love you, you're beautiful. That's a different kind of thing. So the words that... You can see the power words have. If you say mean things to little kids, they're scarred for life. So um, these are words spoken, and they have importance and power, and they're meant to be given the prime, the primacy, their primary place. All right. Sounds good. All right. Let's uh, go to a question. Answer a liturgy <laughs> question. A literature question. <laughs> woo So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church, 
and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this question this week comes from... uh, me. So, <laughs> hi Jesse. Jesse. <laughs> I, I love your show. I really love the funny guy. He's the best part. Oh, I sure am. Thank you, Jesse. <laughs> the other stuff is okay. <laughs> um, well, so for those of who don't know, uh, we just had our, our fourth baby, uh, Theodore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been. Come on, give me know, a trumpet blast there, Dennis. <laughs> And uh, but just catching up on my rite of infant baptism and and all of that, and I came across this article uh, that explained that there were some people abusing the title of godparent in Sicily uh, because they were trying to gain influence or things like that, and they were being banned. Children were being banned from having godparents. So. Uh, I don't know what that is all about. And I have, I mean, there's a lot of questions to ask, but I guess first and foremost, do you have to have a godparent? You know, can you just say, no, nobody get, no godparent for you, you know, that type of thing. Well, let's look at the story here, right? So this is in Southern Italy and uh, Catania is the area that it's being described. They have a three-year ban on naming godparents because... They're saying they're not actually asking for godparents who will raise their kids Catholic, should, you know, should they need it. They're more interested in getting wealth and networking opportunities. So I guess what they saw was that the godparent system had kind of broken down. Hmm. So now they were they – were, um, what did they say? They shared the concerns that this now secular custom could embolden organized crime figures. So turning it off for three years, they said, was an experiment in trying to prevent this kind of abuse, as you said, of what godparents are supposed to be. This now, is why we can't have nice things. I know. Now, Chris, <laughs> you're the pro on all of these things. I mean, huh. I thought you had to have godparents. Are they required? Or are they optional? It sounds like the bishop seems to think that there's the option to not have them. Yeah. Uh, I learned, I'm still learning on this. I, this is a confusing thing. Um, and I'll direct you to one of the best things I've read is by Father Roger Landry, who wrote a piece on uh, the National Catholic Register, Godparents are Guides to Holiness. And I thought that was pretty good. Uh, but one of the things I read uh, in that was that actually in, this is Canon 872, Uh, On sponsors or godparents, it says, insofar as possible, a person is to be a person to be baptized is to be given a sponsor who assists uh, an adult in initiation or together with the parents presents an infant for baptism. I didn't know that, actually, or if I did, I've forgotten it, that insofar as possible, a person to be baptized is to have a godparent. That does kind of make it seem like it's. Well, it is. It is possible to get baptized without a godparent. So canonically, it does seem to be a legitimate option. When I first heard this headline, I was surprised that it, could, that it was an option that you know could just ban godparents. Same but here. Seems weird. 
Well, it's certainly, uh, you know, out of what has become the norm. But I think what Father Landry goes on to say is, you know, you don't have to be from, a, you know, southern Italy or Sicily or wherever to have this problem is that, you know, in in our country, too, the, the role of godparent has become all too often merely, uh, uh, what would you call it? Um, it's not taken seriously. A, a, t- a title? Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's an honor oh, to someone you like rather than someone who will really raise yeah, your kids it's Catholic. honorary. Yeah, exactly. And so this is not, you know, some bizarre thing that's proper to a little part of the world. This is happening in, you know... The Weiler family, I mean, who knows who they're going to ask for godparents. I mean, it could be. But if you're out there and listening, just. Re- <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, if you're out there listening and you want to be a godparent of my, my newborn, uh, please send your submissions to questions at liturgyisaac. Along with a check for. <laughs> the, but that's the problem in the first place. That's exactly the problem is that godparents, you know, are not taking this seriously. So, right. But they're not necessary for the validity of the sacrament. Let's get that. Clear, right? You can That's be baptized correct. validly without them. And who knows? Maybe you're the only two Catholics on a desert island and there are no godparents around. You know, you can mm-hmm. baptize somebody, I suppose, even if there's no godparents to, to be there. Yeah. So it's, uh, I would say, to my mind, it's kind of an ongoing, uh, this story is developing further. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. And um, I don't know. I'm learning a little bit along the way. So anyway, I don't know. All right, Jesse, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> and if you have, if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. And don't forget your application to be godparent of my child. So. Or come to 1120 North 2nd Street, Ashton, Kansas, 66002. You could do that as well. Uh, all right. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by... The Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, the Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture and Ex Corde, both at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast.